Hi, friends. I appreciate all of you who are listening to Real Grief, Real Healing, the podcast. If you're finding benefit from listening to anything that I might have to say or my guests, what they are sharing, the importance of all of the aspects of how they have had grief and how they are healing, my experiences that I share, how I have had grief and and do have grief and also am healing. What I'm asking you to do is please share this on social media because right now that is how I will build more people to be listening. And and one of the reasons I want to build more people to be listening is I want to continue helping people like you. I get messages from several of you on a weekly basis. And if you like what you're hearing and you think someone else can benefit, please share on your social media channels. I would sure appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to Real Grief, Real Healing with Mindy Corcoran here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel, taking a deep dive into the reality of the difficulty grief brings and offering insight into the healing available to each of us. Today, episode 44, Change Your Narrative with Knowledge. And now your host, Mindy Corcoran. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining me on Real Grief, Real Healing with Mindy Corcoran. You're about to hear an interview that I have with my friend, Zhao Zhao Shen. And I want to tell you, I practiced her name because I wanted to make sure I got it correct. You see, friends, Zhao Zhao has not had a specific grief event during her lifetime, like a tragic event similar to mine. But what she has had is growing up in the United States, she was she came over from China with her parents. They were immigrants. She was a young girl, and she grew up wondering, am I American or am I Chinese? And actually, to hear her talk, I'm not quite sure that she's resolved that, but she's working at resolving that, what it's going to be like for her children. I asked Zhao Zhao to speak to us and to speak to you because I'm always trying to learn. I'm learning about people who are grieving. I'm learning how they heal. That's what the main premise of Real Grief, Real Healing has been, our podcast. And then as the racial tensions were heightened, when the Atlanta shooting happened, occurred earlier in 2021, we were all thrown for a loop when we saw the devastation in the Asian communities. Um, specifically during COVID. And it caused me and other groups of women that I am involved in to say, we need to do better. We need to have a different narrative. How can we be better people? So friends, you're going to hear this interview with Zhao Zhao Shen. And I appreciate you listening. And I hope that you find her resolutions for us, her recommendations for us near the end of our podcast as very meaningful and heartfelt as much as I did. Thank you for tuning in. Zhao Zhao, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you being on our call um, on the podcast, Real Grief, Real Healing with Mindy Corcoran. Let's get started. I've got some questions for you, and, um, and I know that our listeners are going to learn a lot and hopefully then dive in and have the opportunity to find other avenues of learning as well. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for having me. Great. Um, so friends, I met Zhao Zhao 
um, really just personally in this last year. Uh, but I knew of Zhao Zhao when she was a reporter, anchor reporter at um, Action 41 News, KSHB. And um, But now, Zhao Zhao, you are um, NPR, head of PR at Hallmark. Can you mm-hmm. give us a, just a whatever kind of description you want to give us of what you do in your daily life at work? Yeah. So um, at, at, the, at the core of what I do, I think in, in both careers I've had in PR and also as a broadcast journalist, I'm a storyteller. And so it's just, you know, the stories I tell are a little bit different. And so now um, leading PR at Hallmark, I really have a wonderful um, opportunity to tell stories about caring and how people can show more care um, to those in their lives, how they can put more care into this world. And it's something that's needed now more than ever. And so I'm really honored um, to be in this role where I really get to focus every single day on, um, you know, love and support and encouragement and care of others. So it's really special. That's fun. That's a really fun job to have to be able to say that that's what you get to do and like doing it. Obviously, some people might not want to wake up every day and go care for someone else um, or tell the stories about caring. And that's what I'd love to talk about with you. When we uh, initially met this summer personally on two different uh, calls, two different opportunities, the reason you were brought into uh, my life and our, you know, the lives of these two different groups of women that I'm involved in is because we want to respect. We want to offer respect to um, to everybody. And I am speaking right now as a white girl from a mostly white town. We had Native Americans in Marlow, Oklahoma, um, but we did not have anyone of color. And um, I'm pretty sure we didn't have anyone who was Chinese. So I I wasn't around anyone that was specifically that different from me. Again, there were Native Americans uh, being in Oklahoma. I also didn't have anyone who was not Christian around me. So that has been a big part of my story is learning about the Jewish faith, Hindu, agnostic, atheist, etc. But I've broadened my horizon. I'm I'm searching and learning and and wanting to understand and respect um and really help other people learn and respect um people who are different from us and and, and different because they they had the, a different opportunity, different experiences, different way to grow up. So I want to just start with a really it's kind of a heavy question. What right now is keeping you up at night? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot. (laughs) I'm not sleeping well. You know, I have kind of the literal sense of what's keeping me up at night is I have a child who recently watched a video that was scary. He's six years old. So he comes into the room every single night. Um, but I think kind of in the more, um, deeply personal side of things, you know, what's keeping me up at night a lot right now is thinking about my children and their future. You know, we are living in a politically, very politically divided society right now. Um, You know, we are living in a world where um, our climate is suffering, and it's difficult to change habits. um, And, and, um, you know, collectively make a true change that will positively impact that or at least put a stop to how we're we're damaging our, our, our earth. 
Um, and here I am bringing kids into this world and what the future is going to look like for them. But something a little bit more specific that I think about a lot is, um, you know, are my children going to grow up in a world where they feel like they belong? And, um, you know, this is something that I experienced growing up. I am a Chinese girl, um, grew up in a country where, um, I was othered constantly, whether, you know, someone was asking me whether I speak English, where I'm really from, um, you know, what do I eat? Do I eat cats, dogs, bats, or any part of an animal that isn't part of, you know, the American diet? I never really felt like I belonged among my white peers. Um, and then you flip that over. And whenever I visited China to go visit my relatives, they always pointed out to everyone we met that I am from America. I was from the United States. I was not from China. I dressed differently. I spoke differently. I carried myself differently. Um, you know, I was fluent in Mandarin, but I still kind of spoke differently. Um, and so then I didn't feel like I really belonged in China either. But I always knew though, you know, deep in my soul and because of who my parents are, I always knew I was Chinese, 100%. You know, my family can trace our family history back 4,000 years to the Zhou dynasty in China. So I always knew that I am Chinese, but my children don't have that. My children are biracial. You know, I'm Chinese. Their father is white, raised, born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri. Roots are mostly European. So the difference between my experience and my children's experiences is, is, you know, where do they belong? Uh, I don't know, you know, in the future, will they feel torn between my heritage and their father's heritage? And then the other thing that I think about then, and this is when, you know, you're laying there and you start to have this loop where like one thought leads to the next, that leads to the next, that leads to the next, is then I think, well, how can I really truly support my children through this when I won't know what their lived experiences are? I don't have experience with this. I won't know how they feel. So how can I be sure that I understand that or support them through questions that they may have about their identity? So I think about that a lot too. And, you know, what am I going to do if they come to me one day and, you know, say that somebody said something to them in school and it made them feel like they didn't belong? You know, obviously I love my children. I love them unconditionally. I will love them through any sort of, you know, um, you know, identity questions that they have, but will that be enough? Because I will never truly understand the experience that they will have as biracial children, teenagers, and then adults. So that's really what I think about all the time. That's a lot. And I knew it was a lot. That's why I asked the question. I know <laughs> that. And so my listeners are probably thinking, why did you ask her that question first? But I, I had a secret entrance into you know, what you were going to talk about, because I have the pleasure of hearing you twice this summer and was really so grateful that you allowed us. Um, and we're a, we're a fairly diverse group. I don't think anyone's Chinese in the group, but there are black women and white women and uh, I believe a Native American woman and in, in the various groups. And so we're welcoming, but we really tapped into you at a tumultuous time. In the United States, just like white women have tapped into, and not that you haven't as a Chinese woman, but that we have tapped into black women and said, hey, can you help us through this whole racial thing we're trying to learn? So um, we're trying to learn from you. And so, listeners, that's what we're doing. Um, you know, Zhao Zhao and I have spoken, and she has not specifically had 
one grief event that I typically talk about. So it's a little bit different podcast, but what has what has transpired over her lifetime and other and other people just like her who are born and raised in the United States or come or come over, you know, from from somewhere else. We're supposed to be this melting pot and they're trying to fit in and yet not, you know, as I should say, fit maybe assimilate, but not assimilate because you want to keep your heritage. And, and, you know, maybe when you were a little girl, I want you to talk about that. You probably wanted to assimilate and your parents probably didn't want you to assimilate. And then now as an adult, I'm curious, do you look back at that and say, okay, now I see the importance of my heritage. I mean, for you to mention and say, not just mention, but know that you can trace your heritage back 4,000 years, that's just fascinating and incredible. Um, I, I think that's amazing. So I, I'm going to lean on you now to give us a few of your childhood. I like hearing about your childhood and teenage experiences with your family. What was that mm-hmm. like for you? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that um I think that assimilation is an interesting thing because assimilation is something that I think my family did a lot when I was growing up outside of our home. Inside of our home, I was raised in a very traditional Chinese family, strict Chinese parents, academics first, no extracurricular activities except for violin playing, which is also a very isolating activity because you go to class and then you come home and you practice by yourself. My dad would sit with me every day for one hour watching me practice my violin. Um, You know, I I was expected to do homework. I did every single extra credit assignment. I got um, one B plus in high school. It was first semester honors English. I got a B plus because I didn't participate because I was painfully shy. And my parents called a conference with the teacher and the teacher was so confused. Like it's a B plus what, what you need to conference over this. And they were serious that I got a B plus. So there went my perfect GPA in high school, just done over, never again going to be able to be accomplished. And so I grew up like that inside the house, but outside of the home, my parents, um, made an effort to assimilate, you know, we, I grew up in San Francisco. We never lived in Chinatown. Um, the only time we went to Chinatown was to go shop for groceries. Um, you know, my mom would pack, um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, a common immigrant experience. Um, uh, particularly when I speak about Asian, um, immigrants, I'm typically, um, talking about East Asian, um, immigrants because that's where my experience is it's it's very you know the the asian population is just so vast and and so diverse and culturally different so usually when i when i talk about my experiences it's from the east asian background um you know my my mom would pack me peanut butter jelly sandwiches instead of leftovers from the day before so i didn't necessarily have the experience that i think a lot of um, immigrant children have where you bring food from your culture to school and then you get made fun of because of it, because it's so different than what um, what American children typically eat. So we did assimilate in ways um, outside of the home. You know, growing up, it was um, it was I felt very torn. You know, I spoke Mandarin exclusively at home with my parents. I spoke English at school. My parents um, told me they were not going to speak English to me at home. Um, because they did not want me to learn their accent. They have a Chinese accent when they speak English. Um, and because their English, frankly, wasn't very good at the time. They had just, they were new immigrants to this country. I was born in China myself. So we came when I was, when I was very young. So, um, 
you know, I felt really torn because I wanted to speak English. I wanted to be like my classmates. I didn't like being singled out. I didn't like feeling different than my classmates. You know, um, my name, um, you know, is a Chinese name and I didn't like the feeling I had on the first day of school every year when the teacher would be calling roll and you would hear them say, you know, Michelle, Stacy, John, you know, Peter, Kevin. And that's when I knew they got to my name and I would raise my hand and I'd say it's Jaja. And usually they just kind of go, uh-huh, and then move on, you know? And so I went through um, school, you know, with my name being so unusual and unique, um, you know, I was often perceived and, you know, this is kind of chicken or the egg. Was it, was it, I was perceived this way. And so I took on those characteristics or is, are these characteristics that were truly, um, you know, part of who I was as, as a, as a student and as a child, but, you know, kind of, I was labeled the model minority, which, you know, you've probably heard that term used a lot, which is a microaggression in itself is the assumption that I'm Chinese. And so I must be really smart. I must be really quiet and docile and obedient. And so those were kind of just labels that were placed on me when I was growing up. There was just this assumption that I was that. So again, I don't know if I truly was that or if it's just people assumed I was that way. And so I started to take on those characteristics. Um, you know, I, I, um, I actually was going to legally change my name right before I started eighth grade. We had moved um, from San Francisco to Denver, Colorado. And, um, we moved in 95 and, um, 95, I can't remember that far back now, but anyway, we had moved in the mid nineties and basically I was going to start school in August. And then the following year in like the spring sometime, we were going to get our U S citizenship. And so I had told my parents that summer before I started school in Colorado that I wanted to change my name to Jackie. I thought that would solve all my problems. No one would mispronounce my name anymore. So when I enrolled in school, technically, legally, my name was still Jajau. But when I enrolled in school, I went ahead and started filling out Jackie. And I started telling people my name was Jackie. And so, wow, what a difference it was to not have to see people look so uncomfortable when they're trying to figure out how to say my name. But then what ended up happening is my name was Jackie Shen. So then everybody started calling me Jackie Chan and do you know fake karate moves at me. And so it didn't stop. You know, I'm still getting made fun of for my name, even when I changed it to an English name. So, um, you know, I think that um, these are kind of these things that have just compounded over the years um, for me, at least when I was young. And it's interesting because, um, you know, when we first met, um, it was because I was invited to speak to a group um, following the shootings in Atlanta um, in March when six women of Asian descent were um, murdered in their place of employment Um, and a crime that has not been labeled a hate crime. Um, But, uh, you know, it was after that happened that all of these memories of things that had happened to me when I was a kid came flooding back to me. And I think what happened was They happened so frequently and so often when I was growing up, and I felt so hurt every single time that they happened, that my mechanism for protecting myself was to compartmentalize it and forget about it. So I honestly grew up, you know, if you had asked me five years ago, 
you know, had you ever faced racism or prejudice or anything as a child, I would have told you no. But then after, you know, after what happened in Atlanta, and then, you know, added on top of that over the course of the last year, with seeing all of the visuals of violence committed against Asians during this pandemic, I think it just started to bring it all back to me and made me realize that some of these things that I thought were perfectly harmless are actually what's caused me a lot of pain and trauma over time. You know, and I think that's the thing about microaggressions. Another term that we've been hearing a lot of recently, microaggressions are, they don't always happen with malicious intent. But as we know, intent isn't always what's important. It's the impact. And so they may not happen with malicious intent, but they can still be just as hurtful to somebody. And that's what makes them microaggressions because they're small, but you add them together one by one by one, one link by one link by one link. And next thing you know, you've got a person completely wrapped up in this chain of microaggressions that they've experienced over their lifetime. And, you know, that's, that causes trauma in somebody's life and that can really hurt them and it can shape who they become when they're an adult and how they perceive themselves and how they perceive others. So, um, I don't know if that really answered your question. That but. <laughs> that <laughs> was very <laughs> that was a very good that was a great answer and and some of it is what I expected you to say and some of it was new and I want to tell you well, not new but I want to tell you how it affected me when you talked about microaggressions because I think that it might affect other people and listeners and I just want to say it out loud so sometimes I do that. People don't like to talk about death and I talk about death a lot because I know about death and so I speak about that. Um most people don't want to talk about death and they don't want to talk to me about it because they're worried they're going to hurt me more. And so frequently people are silent and that's that's a problem. And so I'm trying to teach people, you know, you need to speak. Well, when you talked about microaggressions, I feel very um, inadequate to I, I'm having you on the podcast. I want you to tell your story. I want to help educate people. And yet I know I'm not at all as educated as I need to be. And so I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking, what microaggression have I already said? What micro, you know, what? And I know that's what stops people because we're worried that we're going to say something that's going to hurt and we don't want to. And so I say to people, always lead with curiosity and lead with respect. Like out of respect, um, I said to you before we started recording that, I'm not going to give you a, this big introduction until we talk because I really want to do the introduction justice. And so all the listeners are he hearing this now, and then I'm going to record the introduction that will really frame, you know, what we're talking about. And that's what was important to me. I didn't want to just give this canned introduction. I wanted to hear us talk about it. And the microaggressions, it causes me pause to to talk to you, but I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, Jiao Jiao and I are going to talk about this and we're going to let other people know. And so you had these things happen to you as a, as a student and as a young girl growing up. And what incensed me when I first started talking to you about this is that they still happen, is that they've happened in your corporate life. They happen to you as an adult when I think people should know better and, and explain Explain what happens, what has happened, what is happening now that you are still 
needing to correct? And and are you? Are you speaking up too? Are you are you different now? Even since Atlanta, what what are you doing? Um, okay, I'm asking too many questions at a time. I want you to. Tell us what's happened in your corporate life that people are going to be shocked that that's still happening in a corporate world. And you don't need to name names. And I'm not saying that it, quote, happened at Hallmark or happened somewhere else. But I think in your corporate life, what has happened? And then two, since Atlanta and since you've felt those feelings come back to you, what are you what are you doing to um, to help yourself through the healing process? Yeah. So I think um, one thing that's really important to point out, and you mentioned this um, just a moment ago when you said lead with curiosity, is I think we need to remember that we're never going to know everything. You know, I'm not an expert in microaggressions by any means because I've only experienced them from, you know, the ones that are directed to me. I have no idea what microaggressions I've committed to other people. You know, I mean, we all are guilty of it. And I think the first thing is recognition and understanding that we are guilty of it and understanding the concept of intent is, um, you know, intent is fine, but impact is more important. And to recognize that the impact of what you're saying versus what your intentions were. So when you apologize, you apologize for the impact, not your intentions, right? You never, you never apologize by saying, I didn't mean to hurt you. Because the bottom line is you hurt me. So anyway, um, so I think it's important to point out that we're all constantly learning. This is an ongoing journey and we need to be asking questions to continue to learn. I think it's in how we ask questions and how we accept the answers and how we commit ourselves to do better next time. Um, you know, I think that um, I'm definitely different. And I'll, le- I'll start with that before I go back to some of the microaggressions I've experienced as, a, as an adult. Um, for sure, over the course of the last year, I've become a lot more outspoken about, um, you know, my experiences and sharing. So when opportunities like the one that you're presenting to me right now come up, uh, come up, I, I think, you know what, this is an opportunity for me to hopefully share my experience that will a maybe, you know, prompt somebody to think a little bit differently about how they may have um, treated somebody who looks like me in in their life, um, how they can better support somebody who looks like me, how they can continue on this journey toward, you know, um, toward understanding and acceptance. Um, And then the other part of it is, you know, maybe there is somebody who's experienced similar things to me and is afraid to speak up. And so I'm hoping to inspire others to share their stories, because I think that's how we're all going to learn is if we share it. And I think people are more um, willing to embrace personal experiences and personal stories. Um, And so the more of us out here talking about this, um, the more we are going to spread this message and hopefully, you know, really inspire change and the change that needs to happen. So I'm definitely different in calling things like this out. Um, you know, in my, in my adult life, um, you know, like I said previously, I was a broadcast journalist. Um, that was, that's a very visual medium. And that is truthfully where I continue to experience a lot of um, microaggressions. You know, I was asked by a news director once if I would be willing to change my on-air name. Um, because my name is difficult to say. And they were afraid that viewers wouldn't connect with me because my name is so different. Um, I was told, um, at one of the TV stations where I worked, um, we had a makeup consultant come in and, you know, tell us how to do our hair and what to wear and how to do our makeup. And she had obviously never done eye makeup for Asian eyes before. And that is a huge thing in the, again, East Asian, um, community where, you know, we, there, there are more now, but, you know, back when I started in news, you know, 15 years ago, there really weren't like makeup influencers. So I had no idea how to do my eye makeup. And if I went to, you know, the makeup counter at a department store, 
it's most likely going to be a Caucasian woman who's never done Asian eye makeup before doing my eye makeup. So this makeup consultant was telling me, you know, we really need to create the illusion of a crease in your eye. And so she's like using black eyeshadow to create the illusion of a crease. And I was like, and I actually said this to her, I said, why would I create the illusion of a crease when I don't have one because I'm Asian? And she had no, she just like did not know what to say. And just kept doing what she was doing. She also told me my eyebrows were too short. Eyebrows typically need to be this long. And I said, by whose standards? By whose Western beauty standards do eyebrows need to be that long? You know, and then she also mentioned to me that I really need to begin waxing my lip. And the reason for that is because my hair is black. And so you can see the black hair in HD. And I said, and I thought, I thought to myself, well, my boyfriend doesn't seem to care and he sees me a heck of a lot closer than anybody on TV is going to see me. So I'm not going to wax my lip. Thank you very much. So, you know, I had things like that happen. Um, I was told by a coworker, this was an anchor and this was when I was a reporter. She would have to toss to me in the field, you know, saying, and the station's Zhao Zhao Shen is out in the field. Well, she um, couldn't figure out how to say my name. And so I told her it was Zhao Zhao with a hard J. And she said, well, you know, you could really just go by Zhao Zhao. It sounds more French. And I thought to myself, why would I, a Chinese woman, want to sound French? Seriously? Mm -hmm. Did you just say that? So it's stuff like that that continue to happen. I think there are... Um, you know, are continue to be assumptions that I'm, um, you know, going to be quiet and meek. Um, you know, I think that sometimes, so I've discovered in myself, the way I work best is I'm a processor. So I'm not somebody who can give reactions very quickly. If I see a presentation, it takes me a minute to process it. I might ask to actually see the slides again and to review them before I can form an actual opinion. I don't react quickly. That's just my brain and how I work. Um, but I will have an opinion, but I think it's just this assumption that I won't because I'm quiet and I'm shy and I don't want to create waves because I'm Asian, you know, and that's what Asian people are like. And so, um, you know, I will say that it's been a while, um, since I've experienced some of these, um, some of these microaggressions in the workplace um, you know, I, it's, it's, it's been, um, you know, especially working from home where I'm not really around people anymore. It, it's, it's been a while since I've experienced these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, it definitely is, it, it definitely is something that still continues. I actually, you know, in, I backtracked that something did happen. Um, a couple of months ago, I was on a call with somebody who, um, works for another, um, another organization and we were talking about something um, community related, Kansas City community related. And um, she got on the call and she goes, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how long it's been since I've seen you. I'm pretty sure the last time I saw you was at this derby party. And I was at so-and-so's house. And I said, I wasn't at that derby party at so-and-so's house. And she said, yeah, yeah, you were. You were. You were. You were there with your husband, you know, so-and-so. And I was like, yeah, that that wasn't me. That was the other Asian reporter at the other TV station. Um, and she just kind of went, Oh, okay. Like no apology of like, you know, figuring we're pretty interchangeable and like nothing like that. She just kind of went, okay, that's fine. Rather My than bad, pointing you know? rather than pointing out that you're in an individual and that was, yeah, that was not you. 
Yeah. And yeah. she just kept insisting that it was me until finally I said, no, that was not me. You were talking about, and it was when she mentioned the husband's name. I was like, oh, you're thinking of that person. You know, but that mm-hmm. happened all the time. I could be out with, when I worked at 41 Action News, like you said, I would be out in the field standing next to the live truck that had our station's name. And I would constantly, there were four of us. There was one, as I called it, one token Asian at each of the TV stations here in this market at the time one Asian woman at each station. And I would constantly be called the other names of the other Asian women. And -hmm. they would constantly be called my name too. And it's just this idea that we're just so interchangeable that we all look alike and that we all know each other, you know? So Mm -hmm. anyway, it's just, yeah, it continued into my adult life too. But I am more outspoken now about it. And I'm not going to be shy about, you know, telling someone that what they said is not right, that it was hurtful, that it was a problem that was problematic or that, you know, it's just not true. Um, so I, I've made a commitment to myself that I'm not going to just accept it anymore, that I'm going to push back and, and tell people that, you know, it's not okay. Thank you. I think that's helpful to, to, for us to learn for, for me to learn. I can speak for myself that, you know, just so the listeners know, we got on and I and I introduced her to Dave, my producer, and I said Zhao Zhao instead of Zhao Zhao. And so we had a good conversation about Mandarin and Beijing and mm-hmm. how to say Zhao Zhao's name. And and that is important. I want people to understand that lifelong um misunderstanding, lifelong disrespect, whether it was meant as disrespect or not, but the impact is what you've talked about. The impact has had an impact on you, and um, and I love that you are finding your voice. You've you've found your voice through different mechanisms, and now you're finding it for personal, very personal reasons, mm-hmm. which I appreciate. Well, I mean, and I, and I think about this all the time. Is you know, like I said, what keeps me up at night? It's you know, I can't I can't let it slide. Because if I do let it slide, then my children are going to grow up in this world that continues to view them as different. You know, but if I don't let it slide, if I try to point out, you know, my circle's pretty small, but as long as I'm trying to be out there sharing this message, sharing my experiences and hoping, helping people understand better, um, you know, how they may be inadvertently hurting people or othering people, um, you know, so they know to do better and to not do it again, then I'm creating a better world for my kids. I'm creating at least hope that they will be accepted for who they are and, um, you know, not othered for, um, you know, being, being the people that they are. So that's kind of, I mean, that's, that's really why I'm doing it is because, you know, it is for me and it is part of my healing process, but it is also for my kids to, um, you know, create a a better place for them to live. Mm -hmm. Which I know when we do things for our children, it helps our heart. It helps mm-hmm. us when we do things for our children. So leave us, leave our listeners with and me um, three options, three opportunities for us to do our own research and learn more about the Chinese culture or Mandarin language or something that you find that is important um, for people that want to now get a little bit more educated. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first step for us is to. Um, really think about what we're consuming. You know, um, I think, you know, what are the 
books we're reading? What are the TV shows we're watching? What are the social media accounts that we're following? The movies that we're choosing? Um, you know, and then and then for our kids too. You know, if you have young children, what are the books you're reading to your kids? What are the TV shows you're showing your kids? Um, I think if we can diversify the content that we're consuming, then the world becomes a whole lot bigger than what, you know, we think it is. If you think about it, um, you know, social media, who are you following on social media? Are you following, you know, Asian influencers? Are you following black influencers? Are you following Latino influencers? So make sure you're diversifying all this content because we're surrounded by content every day. We're on our computers and our devices every single day. So make sure that content is diverse and features a lot of different voices and that you're getting away from the dominant narrative that we're surrounded by and really seeking out different perspectives. So that's number one. I think number two is to cultivate relationships. You know, I think our friendship circle, especially as we become adults, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And, you know, when you have children, you have you have very little time and friendships, as we know, take time to cultivate and to maintain. And so cultivating relationships, I think, is another great way to really expand your circle and to expand the world and your worldview. So, you know, I'm not saying it, you know, specifically go to a Chinese church and find a friend. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But if you have somebody in your life already, maybe it's the parent of a friend of your kid or something like that, maybe invite them for a cup of coffee or get to know them a little bit better and start to kind of cultivate that relationship and, you know, really have people in your circle who have different perspectives. Again, it's it's diversifying the narrative that you're surrounded with. And this is, in, in this case, it's more than you go beyond the screen. Now you're going face-to-face, interaction, real relationships. So I think that um, that would be something helpful. But make sure you're not putting a lot of emotional labor on that person. You know, do your own research, educate yourself, and then have really enriching conversations. Don't sit there and be like, so tell me about, you know, this, or why did, you know, why does somebody react this way? That's putting emotional labor on them. But, you know, have like real, true, deep, meaningful conversation with that person. Right. So um, I, I'm imagining listeners now, hopefully they'll be like at a, at a, at one of their kids, you know, baseball games or basketball games or soccer games or some, some activity, and you'll see someone who is Asian and we're asking you you specifically strike up a conversation and have coffee just learn about them and what we yeah. what you initially have in common are your children on the same team yep Right? Exactly. You just and, start having conversations. Yeah. And I wouldn't lead the conversation specifically that, you know, oh, so you're Chinese. So tell me about, you know, <laughs> I just start with just talk. I mean, how would you talk to anybody else? Right. Right. That's what kids. I mean. Yeah. Talk that's to, what yeah, I mean is exactly. that your common denominator is you've got children who are on. That's a great way is if you do have children. And then I guess, you know, if not, if you're in a work experience, just getting to know someone who's a colleague. Yeah, um, from exactly. from that, whatever you find a common denominator to mm-hmm. to start the curiosity questions. Okay, yeah, third yeah, item, for sure. third thing that we and can then, do. Um, the third item, I think, is probably to just um, experience. You know, to give yourself opportunities to experience. So, you know, I think um, I think a lot of times people may think of Chinese food for example. Chinese food, I feel like, is viewed two ways in this country. It's either viewed as cheap takeout that you call ahead and you have delivered to your house, especially when you're hungover, um, or it's viewed as disgusting. You know, it's animal parts that, um, you know, we're not used to eating in the American diet. It's animals that, um, you know, the stereotype and the really harmful stereotype is that it's animals that, you know, um, 
if people in the United States keep as pets and Chinese people eat, you know, cats, dogs, whatever. Um, so I think Chinese food is viewed in those two ways. So I think, um, you know, take an opportunity to maybe like go to a Chinese restaurant and like sit down and enjoy it. And I'm saying a real Chinese restaurant. I'm not talking about, you know, an American owned trendy, uh, 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 I'm sorry. Um, cause you know, I'm Chinese, but I'm also American. A, um, a, a restaurant started owned, by a white person who's not Chinese, um, opening a Chinese restaurant that's trendy, right? I'm not talking about that kind. I'm talking about a Chinese restaurant that is owned by a Chinese person and go to the restaurant and experience it and really enjoy the food and eat it. Or maybe it's, there's a Chinese festival, you know, for Lunar New Year happening in your, in your community. Um, go to that and experience it and see how, you know, Chinese people celebrate the single largest holiday in our culture, Lunar New Year, or, um, you know, maybe it's learning a little bit more about the moon festival, which just happened in September and what it's about. And then, you know, if there is, um, you know, a moon festival celebration in your community, you know, seek it out. So seek out these experiential, um, opportunities where you can go and immerse yourself in the experience of this culture. Um, I think that that's another really great way. Again, it's going back to that whole, we have to change the narrative that we're surrounded by. Our, the dominant narrative right now is what can be harmful to you know communities of color because we're just, we're marginalized. Our stories are not being told. Our voices are not being heard. So I think a key step and and the three the three things that I detailed out are three different ways to do it, but it's really to change the narrative around you that you're experiencing, that you're hearing. Um, and I think that's really going to go a long way in helping you become more empathetic, helping you become more understanding and helping you become more accepting to people who are different than you. That's perfect. I don't think I have anything else to add to that. That's perfect. I love that we're going to change the narrative. And 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 you've given us a platform to do that with with everything that you spoke about. So, thank you so much for being on Real Grief, Real Healing with Mindy Corcoran. And um and we're going to close now. And for all my les- listeners now, I'm going to go record the intro that you would have heard at the beginning of this and hopefully give it as much power and energy as it deserves for Jiao Jiao Shen. Well, Mindy, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate you sharing your platform and allowing me to, um, to use my voice to tell my story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Real Grief, Real Healing here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com slash support. Real Grief, Real Healing is copyright 2021, Mindy Corcoran, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.